Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of drugs and abuse that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. A six-foot, three-inch tall man with long, flowing white hair stood at the top of a cliff, his velvet robe whipping in a dangerous wind. Around him were dozens of his followers, a New Age spiritual group called the Source Family. They were dressed in robes like their leader, but their expressions were filled with dread. The young people watched helplessly as the man they knew as Father Yod climbed into a hang-gliding kite. Although he had never hang-glided before, Father Yod assured his followers that Jesus was the wind and Jesus would take care of him. He launched himself over the cliff. His followers watched, breathless, as he briefly appeared to take flight. Then the wind stopped. Father Yod plummeted through the sky, falling nearly 2,000 feet to his death, in what some of his followers now believe was far from an accident. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults on the Podcast Network. Every Tuesday, we take a look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. Today, we're taking a deep dive into the Source family, a new age vegetarian cult founded by Hollywood restaurant owner James Edward Baker in 1969. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Cults, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. The Source Family began as a tight-knit group of employees and patrons at The Source Restaurant in Hollywood, California in 1969. The Source was a popular hangout among Hollywood's health-conscious elite, Not only was it the only place in Los Angeles where you could buy an organic, vegetarian meal, it was also a place to see and be seen. Perhaps no one was more visible at the source than its owner, Jim Baker. Already a well-known figure in the L.A. restaurant scene, Baker was famous for his gregarious personality, striking good looks, and intriguing shadowy past. Baker was a member of what journalist Tom Brokaw dubbed the Great Generation. Born on the 4th of July in 1922, Baker was a World War II veteran, a leather worker, and a jiu-jitsu expert, known to have killed at least two men with his bare hands. He was also an advocate of vegetarianism and a student of various forms of mysticism. Upon meeting Kundalini yoga master Yogi Bhajan in 1969, Baker became a Sikh and began teaching yoga and meditation classes at The Source. It was through these classes that Baker first began to gather his following, a group of young, bright-eyed Hollywood hippies who would one day come to see him as a god. Last week, we talked about Jim Baker, the man. 
his childhood, his psyche, and how his lifelong search for a father figure led him to assuming the role of an all-knowing spiritual father. Today, we'll take a closer look at the Source family and some of its members, exploring how Baker's escapism and growing need for control took him and his followers on a madcap search for paradise that ended in a living hell. When Jim Baker began teaching meditation classes at The Source in August of 1970, he did so at the urgings of his 20-year-old wife, Robin Popper. In part one, we discussed how Robin decided Baker was a prophet after he inadvertently saved her from being murdered by followers of Charles Manson. Since their marriage in May of 1970, her faith in him had only grown as his recommendations for her diet transformed her health and well-being. As Robin's faith in Baker grew, she became not only his wife and disciple, but also his greatest promoter. She wrote chalkboard signs announcing his meditation classes and spread the word about his spiritual gifts. As far as Robin was concerned, she was living proof that her husband's teachings worked. Initially, these teachings were based on the ideas of Baker's spiritual mentor, Yogi Bhajan. However, as Baker grew accustomed to the role Robin had laid out for him, his methods quickly evolved. Baker began channeling new spiritual ideas and claiming they were the word of God. This was his first step toward becoming a cult leader, and his students' enthusiasm showed they were ready to follow. Vanessa's going to take over with the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note that Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. According to Benjamin Radford, deputy editor of The Skeptical Inquirer and author of several books explaining the science behind common myths, channeling is believed to be a process by which a person's body is taken over by a spiritual being for the purpose of communication. In the late 60s and early 70s, channeling became synonymous with an expansion of consciousness. People seeking spiritual enlightenment, like Baker and his students, for instance, believed that by altering their psychological state by way of meditation or mind-altering drugs, they opened themselves up to communications from a higher realm. Baker's students believed that when Baker channeled, he was speaking the word of God. In reality, however, channeling has nothing to do with God and everything to do with the person channeling. According to Radford, when a person meditates and clears his or her mind, random thoughts, images, and symbols may spontaneously arise, though it may seem that this information is coming from another consciousness outside the body. In fact, it is generated by the mind itself. In other words, the thoughts Baker claimed were coming from God weren't, but his followers didn't know that. Robin told them Baker was a prophet, and those who attended his classes were ready to believe. One of Baker's early followers was a self-described 19-year-old hippie who became known in the family as Whisper. Whisper says she was on a spiritual journey in Northern California when she had a vision while meditating that convinced her to move to L.A. In this vision, Whisper saw a man wearing a robe, reaching out to her and saying, come up. Obviously, this vision could be interpreted in a number of ways. But a few weeks later, when Whisper stumbled across a meditation class at the source, she became convinced that the man in her vision was the teacher, Jim Baker. And she wasn't the only one. 
Dozens of former Source family members have recounted visions or dreams in which they saw a man with long hair and a white robe, whom they later identified as Baker. And while these visions certainly make for a good story, they're far from being signs of Baker's divinity. They're actually a result of what psychologist Robert J. Lifton calls mystical manipulation. Lifton describes mystical manipulation as actions that seek to provoke specific patterns of behavior and emotion in such a way that these will appear to have arisen spontaneously from within the environment. In other words, it's a form of emotion-based mind control designed to convince people that events are occurring by mystical means. Baker knew the common image of a prophet was a man with long white hair and a beard dressed in a flowing white robe. Since early 1970, he had been adopting the look, carefully cultivating this image to make people see him as a holy man. And it worked. Spiritual seekers who met Baker often identified him with a guru figure they had seen in dreams or drug-induced visions. His students soon began calling him by his channeled name, Father Yod. They believed he was chosen by God to lead them into the age of Aquarius, a period of enlightenment foretold by the positions of the stars. In March of 1971, Baker channeled a set of instructions for living, which he called the Ten Commandments for the Age of Aquarius. This was the first test of his powers as a cult leader, and most of his followers eagerly went along with it. Just as with the original Ten Commandments, which the prophet Moses is said to have received from God on Mount Sinai in the 16th century BC, the Ten Commandments for the Age of Aquarius were a set of laws to govern the behavior of a single elite group of God's chosen people. Unlike the original Ten Commandments, however, the focus of Baker's commandments wasn't the people's well-being, but Baker's. The first commandment was, Obey and live by the teachings of your earthly spiritual father. The second was, love your earthly spiritual father more than yourself. Clearly, Baker was using his status as a prophet to see which of his students were most susceptible to control. And for the most part, his students took the bait. For many, these clear-cut orders provided just the type of structure they were looking for. One former Source family member, known as Jin, says he spent the early 1970s seeking a new identity after learning his parents gave him up for adoption so they could pursue their dreams of stardom in Hollywood. When Jin met Baker on July 4th, 1971, he was immediately overcome by a sense of peace and order. He began taking classes, working as a busboy at the Source, and following Baker's commandments to a T. Even today, Jin credits Baker's instruction with his personal salvation. The introduction of the Ten Commandments was a way for Baker to test his limits as a spiritual leader, and the experiment was a success. So in March 1972, he put his power to another test, declaring that all of his employees and other followers must give up their belongings and move into a communal home. As extreme as it sounds, Baker had a sound rationale for this proposal. He told his followers they were putting undue strain on themselves by paying rent, but instead they could pool their resources and get a nicer place. In reality, of course, the move was a way for Baker to consolidate his power. But most of his followers needed little convincing, and not just because they were spellbound by Father Yod. The commune Baker chose was the gorgeous 9,000-square-foot Chandler Mansion in the verdant Hollywood Hills. 
Nicknamed the Mother House, the Chandler Mansion had once been home to the publisher of the LA Times and boasted 24 rooms and an Olympic-sized pool. Even today, many Source family members consider their days at the Mother House to be the happiest of their lives. Mornings began with a pre-dawn dip in the pool, followed by meditation led by Baker and inspired by two tokes of the sacred herb, as they referred to marijuana. Days were spent sharing chores at the restaurant and around the house, where high windows let in the cool eucalyptus-scented air. On Sundays, the entire family would pile into their communally-owned vehicles and go to the beach, where, dressed in white, they would wade into the ocean, hand in hand. But there was a price to pay for admission to this earthly Elysium. Baker did not live at the mother house with his followers. Instead, he stayed in a private apartment above the source with Robin. However, he used the commune as a testing ground for his power, establishing the systems by which he would prepare his followers to submit to his every command. First, Baker instituted a complex initiation process to determine who would be allowed to live at the mother house. Although it was presented as a means of ensuring new members would be a good fit for the source family lifestyle, the initiation actually served to brainwash them. Step one was an expression of interest. If anyone inquired about the lifestyle at the source, like why all the workers seemed so loving or why they all dressed in white, they were given a written copy of Baker's teachings and invited to attend his Sunday meditation class. After three meditation sessions, Baker questioned the initiates in front of the group about why they wanted to be there. If they managed to convince him of their absolute devotion, he welcomed them into the family with the order to turn over everything of value that they owned. Most people didn't make it past this stage, as evidenced by the fact that the Source family never had more than about 150 members at a given time. But those dedicated few who were willing to hand over everything they owned were rewarded with a beautiful home and the approval of an all-knowing father. Or so they thought. As it turned out, the pledging process still wasn't complete. Upon moving into the mother house, new members were given a printout of Baker's most recent teachings, which they were expected to organize in a personal binder. They were then forced to take an oath of secrecy, swearing they would never tell anyone outside the cult about what they experienced. Although this oath doesn't seem to have been strongly enforced, Baker warned initiates that if they broke it, they would never be able to forgive themselves. Finally, there was one last step. Once initiates had given up their families, lifestyles, possessions, and freedom of speech, Baker gave them new names, making them full members of the Aquarian family and stripping away the last remnants of their old identities. According to psychologist Yanya Lalich, the erasure of identity is a critical step in cult initiation. She writes, by attacking a person's innermost self, cult leaders manage to dissemble and reformulate members according to the cult's desired image. In other words, they take away you and give you back a cult personality. One new member who went through this process was Charlene Peters, a fashion model, whom Baker renamed Isis. Peters had first met Baker a few years earlier through a mutual acquaintance. When she saw the handsome, charismatic Baker at the source in April of 1972, Peters says she immediately fell in love with him. 
Baker invited Peters to meditation class and gave her a copy of his book, Liberation, which contained his Ten Commandments. After reading the entire book in one sitting, Peters attended three meditation classes at the mother house and decided she couldn't return to her old life. Leaving her boyfriend, her apartment, and all her belongings, Peters moved into the mother house. On Baker's command, she became Isis Aquarian, the Source family historian. In this new role, Isis would film and take photographs of nearly every Source family event, including, years later, her beloved father Yod's death. Despite Baker's claims that this initiation process was necessary to protect the family, there was actually something more insidious at work. By giving up their identities to move into the mother house, they were also giving up their ability to make critical decisions, even when their lives depended on it. The Source family's first brush with danger came at the mother house in April 1972, just days after Baker invited Isis to her first meditation class. Baker, a lifelong advocate of holistic healing, had written in his third commandment, harm not one of your body parts, either by neglect, food, drink, or knife. Initially, the family had taken this command at face value, but in 1972, when 15-year-old Heaven was found to be pregnant with 28-year-old Sunflower's child, Baker began to preach against all modern medicine. Heaven, he decreed, should have her baby at the mother house, away from doctors, nurses, or anyone else who might question how a 15-year-old got pregnant in the first place. Heaven and Sunflower placed full trust in Father Yod. They agreed to his decision, despite the fact that no one in the family knew how to help them if things went wrong. And things very nearly did. In a moment, the delivery that nearly ended in death. Now, back to the story. In April of 1972, nearly 100 members of the Source family gathered into a single room at the mother house to witness the birth of the cult's first baby, the son of 28-year-old Sunflower and 15-year-old Heaven. The birth was a grueling 22-hour ordeal, Heaven suffered excruciating pain, while the rest of the family looked on helplessly. When the baby finally emerged from her body, it wasn't breathing. The umbilical cord was wrapped around its neck. Statistically, about one-third of babies are born with umbilical cords wrapped around their necks, and it's typically not a life-threatening problem. But Baker's young and inexperienced followers didn't know that. They were convinced when they saw the baby come out that it was dead. And yet, they did nothing. They merely stood watching as Baker took the baby into his arms and uttered a prayer. Baker promised that if God would let the child be healthy, he would never speak anything but the word of God again. Then he unwrapped the cord from around the baby's neck. The baby started breathing. Baker's followers considered it a miracle. After less than a year as their spiritual leader, the 50-year-old Baker had them fully convinced of his divine power. Baker was many things over the course of his tumultuous life, but one thing he never aspired to be was a spiritual leader. Nevertheless, once he experienced the power of that position, the lust for it consumed him and he began altering his beliefs and practices to protect that power and to acquire more. Like many other cult leaders before him, 
Baker soon found that he could gain both power and pleasure by tampering with his followers' romantic inclinations. According to Dr. Lalich, cult leaders seemed to realize rather quickly, if they didn't already have it in mind, that a great source of power can be found in the sexual control of their followers. Enforcing sexual submission may be considered the final step in the objectification of the individual as cult member. Soon after their arrival at the mother house, the objectification began. Back in 1971, when he first introduced his Ten Commandments, Baker had stated, The man and his woman are one. Let nothing separate them. But in the fall of 1972, after a little more than two years of marriage to Robin, Baker's eye landed on a new woman, a 19-year-old beauty he named Makushla. At this stage in his cult career, Baker lacked the chutzpah to break his own commandment outright. So instead, he claimed to have channeled a new revelation that women should be free to choose their own sexual partners. This was a stroke of political genius. For one thing, the new policy gave female members of the Source family the impression that Baker aimed to liberate them sexually, an impression which brought him a fair amount of goodwill down the line when his policies became more misogynistic. More importantly to Baker, this channeled revelation gave him a direct license from God to begin a sexual relationship with Makushla. Robin, who had been Father Yod's loving wife and disciple since the days when he was plain old Jim Baker, was understandably devastated. At first, Robin tried arguing with Baker, reminding him of his own commandment for monogamy. Baker responded by saying she was spiritually backward and unfit for the enlightened age of Aquarius. Later, Robin stopped eating. Other members of the cult watched as she grew sick and depressed. Although many of them loved and respected Robin, Source family members were merely acting according to what she herself had told them. They believed Baker was a prophet. Now, despite the fact that many disagreed with his decision, they believed he had the God-given right to receive any woman he wanted. Sadly for Robin, Makushla was only the first. Over the next several months, Baker was chosen by a dozen other women, finally maxing out at 14 wives. Isis was among them. She claims the wives cherished their positions as Baker's women, but Robin, at least, was never happy in the Source family again. Baker's change in sexual policies signified to some that the innocent early days of the Source family were coming to an end. A few months later, this point would be driven home when the Source family was forced to leave the mother house. The Chandler Mansion was located in a highly coveted neighborhood in the lush green hills beneath the iconic Hollywood sign. Unfortunately, this neighborhood was also home to the infamous Tate Mansion, where Robin's friend Sharon and several others had been murdered by Manson followers a few years before. Tate's neighbors, unnerved by the sight of another cult settling in next door, began to complain about the noise, drug use, and health code violations. As a result of these complaints, the owner declined to renew the family's lease. This meant that the Source family, which by now had grown to about 150 people, had to find a new place to stay. And by early 1973, Baker had been so successful in brainwashing his young followers that they could no longer solve their own housing problem. Jim Baker was the only one in the cult with the authority and wherewithal to find the family a new home. 
As we discussed in part one, Jim Baker typically responded to complex problems by running away from them, but this time he didn't cut and run. This could be because, as psychoanalyst Daniel Shaw points out in his book, Traumatic Narcissism, Relational Systems of Subjugation, as a cult leader, Baker had developed a codependent relationship with his followers. Shaw writes, quote, The power that parents have as godlike figures to literally give life and sustain the lives of their children leaves each human being with the memory of total dependency. Cult leaders tap into and reactivate this piece of the human psyche. Followers are encouraged to become regressed and infantilized, to believe that their life depends on pleasing the cult leader, end quote. And just as much as the source family members needed Baker, he apparently needed them. According to Shaw, the cult leader does not escape dependency. Instead, he, and also in many cases, she, comes to depend on his followers to worship and adore him, to reflect his narcissistic delusion of perfection. In March of 1973, the 51-year-old Baker managed to find a second home for his followers, which they called the Father House, a three-bedroom, three-bathroom home in the hills near the Source restaurant. It was significantly smaller than the Mother House, a fact that would soon lead to deadly health risks. In some ways, life at the father house went on just as it had at the mother house. Business at the source was still booming, and it still required a few dozen family members to run it each day. Everyone still gathered for 4 a.m. meditation and spent much of the day cleaning while seeking enlightenment. But in other ways, everything changed. Baker began channeling new beliefs constantly, with an ever-expanding emphasis on his own power. He began calling himself by the Jewish name for God, Yehovah. He taught about the Freemasons and ancient Egyptian magic. For his followers, the pursuit of enlightenment became like a whirlwind game in which no one knew the rules. Nothing captured the helter-skelter energy of this time better than the Source family band. Musicians had been drawn to the family since its early days at the restaurant. At the father house, Baker decided to make things official. He converted the garage into a soundproof recording studio and spent $50,000, almost $300,000 today, to purchase top-of-the-line instruments for the band. Now, following their daily 4 a.m. meditation, Source family members proceeded to the garage, where they would play and hold recording sessions. Initially, the band followed a fairly organized procedure, writing and recording music. But Father Yod, or Yehovah, as he was now known, blew this process apart. After about a year of watching his followers play, Baker decided to become the lead singer. To the frustration of his fellow band members, Baker had virtually no musical talent and no sense of rhythm. He would just start banging a drum or chanting whatever words or sounds he was channeling at the moment. But when you're in a band with a man you think is God, you find a way to follow along. This resulted in the development of a new improvisational style for which the Source Family Band is now famous. They recorded an astonishing 65 albums over the next three years, some of which are now prized by collectors of psychedelia. Most of this renown came decades after the fact, but that didn't stop Baker from living like a rock star. He started dressing in tailored suits and having photos taken of himself with his 14 wives. With money taken in from the source, 
Baker bought a $34,000 Rolls-Royce, almost $200,000 today, and began having various male followers chauffeur him and his wives to the hottest restaurants in town. For some Source family members, Baker's excesses might have been a turnoff. But according to many, the excesses were part of the fun. Envy and resentment were superseded by the excitement of being part of Jim Baker's crowd. One former member known as Omne describes the dynamic like being in a popular group at school with Jim Baker as the alpha male. Omne stated, quote, We were the hope of the world and nobody was going to disrespect us. Nobody was going to mess with us. Father was intentionally provocative and he wanted us to be seen, end quote. Other members of the family, however, were beginning to see the dangers of living by one man's whims. And for some of them, it was already too late. In mid-1973, overcrowding at the father house led to an outbreak of staph infection. Since Baker forbade the use of modern medicine, family members attempted to heal themselves by visualization and chanting. Unfortunately, the infection only spread. At first, this seemed like a minor annoyance, but for two members of the family, it soon became much more. A young woman known as Anastasia developed a staph infection in her breast while she was nursing her baby, Libra. The infection crept into Libra's lungs. Anastasia tried to adhere to Father Yod's principles and forego medical treatment. Eventually, however, she realized her baby was struggling to breathe. Anastasia was faced with the difficult choice of whether to leave Libra's life to fate or to disobey the man she had sworn to serve by seeking outside help. Fortunately for Libra, Anastasia chose the latter. She took Libra to the emergency room where the baby's head was shaved and she was put on an IV. The doctors informed Anastasia that if she waited one more hour, Libra would have died. The relief Anastasia felt upon learning her baby's life was saved must have been immense. But she had disobeyed Yehovah, and there would be a price to pay. In a moment, the cost of disobeying Father Yod. Now, back to the story. In late 1973, Source family member Anastasia disobeyed Yehovah's command against using modern medicine to save her baby's life. In the process, she unwittingly alerted hospital workers to the abhorrent living conditions at the father house. Sensing his position was under threat, Baker responded by tightening control. Perhaps because the trouble had been triggered by a disobedient woman, his first move was to channel a new series of policies restricting women's behavior. Gone were the days when they could choose their own sexual partners. Now, the women in the family were required to serve whatever men Baker assigned them to. They were also no longer allowed to work outside the commune. Instead, they were forced to spend their days cooking and cleaning for their male counterparts. The fact that few Source family members left during this time is evidence of how brainwashed they were. They believed these new policies were the word of God and that following them was a necessary part of their journey to enlightenment. And this wasn't the only way Baker reshaped his followers' identities. He also required all members of the Source family to become registered Sikhs. Baker himself had become a Sikh while studying with Yogi Bhajan, and it now occurred to him that he would have added protection if his followers did so as well. 
By California law, when a person passes away, their body must be embalmed or refrigerated within 24 hours of their death. However, Sikhs have a religious belief that prohibits embalming and are therefore exempt from this law. Baker reasoned that if his followers were Sikhs, a death in the family could be handled under the radar, a loophole they would use more than once in the coming years. In mid-1973, Isis became pregnant with the daughter of a fellow family member known as Osiris. When she told Baker she was pregnant, he got upset, saying she was not meant to be a mother in this lifetime. This mysterious proclamation was probably self-serving, as Baker enjoyed Isis and her role as the family documentarian and probably disliked the idea of her being pregnant by another man. In any case, when Isis's baby, Empress, was born small and weak, Isis took it as proof that Baker's prophecy had been correct. Baker told Isis that her daughter had been meant to come into the world only to take a single breath. He said Empress was clinging to life merely on the strength of Isis's love for her, implicitly encouraging Isis to let her go. Isis didn't give up on her baby, but she didn't take her to a doctor either. Empress survived a few months, looking, in Isis's words, like a skeleton. Then one morning, Isis awoke to find that Empress was dead. Even today, 45 years later, Isis believes her baby's death was fate. Her faith in the man she still calls father is so complete that she never wonders, at least not publicly, whether taking Empress to a doctor might have saved her life. In 1974, the family's troubles began to get worse as questionable accounting methods at the source led to Baker being investigated for tax fraud. Baker had traditionally responded to problems of this nature by running away from them. But now that he was a cult leader, running was no longer an option. Baker now had a family of nearly 150 believers depending on him. And leaving them behind would mean giving up his status as cult guru. He was forced to deal with the tax problems head on and to find an alternative means of escape, which he found in studies of the occult. Up to now, Baker's studies in spirituality had been unusually broad. He incorporated ideas into his teachings from Christianity, Judaism, Sikhism, and many others. But according to former family member Laura Guerin, during their time at the Father House, Baker's interests grew increasingly myopic he became obsessed with the teachings of one man, British occultist Alistair Crowley. Alistair Crowley is best known today for his theories on what he called sex magic. Sex magic is the belief that certain sexual practices unlock a mystical energy with the power to affect change elsewhere in the universe. According to Garen and several other family members, this concept became a central tenet of Baker's teachings and his commands. He started out by teaching his followers the magic of tantric sex. This is a sexual practice that aims to tap into a more profound sexual and spiritual experience by withholding climax and emphasizing touch, eye contact, and energy. According to practitioners, tantric sex can be a powerful bonding experience, and many former Source family members say they still practice it today. But Baker's interest in sex magic didn't stop there. In late 1974, Baker introduced a ritual so unsettling that most of his followers refused to speak of it to this day. 
According to Laura Guerin, the only source family member who has dared to describe it, this ritual was called Kadosh. The details of what exactly it entailed are somewhat vague due to Guerin's self-professed discomfort with the subject, but a few steps of the procedure are clear. First, women who were menstruating were forced to have sex with multiple men. This was because, according to Crowley, menstrual blood had magical powers that would lead to the highest form of enlightenment. Next comes the uncertain part. Garen states that the women's menstrual blood was mixed with men's semen. She then writes that the ritual was referred to as a feeding. So it seems that as a part of the ritual of Kadosh, either one or both of the parties were forced to ingest a mixture of semen and menstrual fluid. As we mentioned previously, Source family members were sworn to secrecy as part of their initiation process. Yet, interestingly, Kadosh is the only aspect in Source family life in which they appear compelled to keep their vows. This may be due to a sense of shame associated with their participation in these acts of abuse. According to psychologist Beverly Engel, victims of abuse often refuse to speak about their experiences because they feel shame from being victimized. She writes, this is especially true with sexual violations. The victim feels invaded and defiled while simultaneously experiencing the indignity of being helpless and at the mercy of another person. Although Garen is the only Source family member who has spoken about Kadosh, several state that Baker's interest in sex magic caused them to leave the cult. Garen confirms that many Source family members left during this time. Clearly, Baker's mindset was darkening, and in late 1974, as the family's legal troubles and overcrowding issues worsened, he became almost nihilistic, channeling visions of the end of the world. Baker told his followers that the United States was about to be pulled into a nuclear war. The war would lead to cataclysmic events around the globe, from which only Baker and his family would emerge alive. Although some members were already leaving around this time, most of those who remained believed him. They began to develop an us-versus-them mentality. According to psychologist Michael D. Langoni, the us-versus-them mentality is critical to cult thinking and may be connected to a sense among cult members that they're part of an elite group with a mission. In the case of the Source family, that mission was to usher in the Aquarian Age of Enlightenment, and they were ready to do whatever it took to make that happen. In late 1974, Baker decided he was going to take something drastic. In what was quite possibly the worst decision of his cult career, he decided to sell the Source restaurant and move his cult to the island of Kauai, Hawaii. Baker told his followers he'd had visions of mangoes and coconuts, proving that Hawaii would be safe from the apocalypse. In reality, this was a desperate move. The source had provided both financial security and the celebrity status Baker enjoyed since the cult's beginning. By selling it, Baker was giving all that away. And the family would soon feel its absence acutely. In December of 1974, they found a 13-acre property on the island of Kauai, a remote island occupied mostly by native Hawaiians. Unfortunately, due in part to the island's long history of invasion, Kauai was less welcoming than Baker had hoped. Hawaii is so resistant to outsiders that they offered a state-run welfare program providing indigent outsiders with free one-way tickets off the island. 
Local Kauaians were even more extreme. They threatened family members in the streets and threw firecrackers onto their property late at night. For Source family members who were minor celebrities back in LA, this reception was a rude awakening. And things were about to get worse. When complaints and harassment failed to drive the cult away, some locals began to attack, shooting at them and trying to run them over with their cars. Baker's response was fierce. He bought a 45 caliber pistol and posted his sons on guard around the property, armed with bows and arrows. The family also set up an archery range with targets in the shape of men. Baker himself had killed several men in his life, including two in hand-to-hand -hand combat, and he showed no qualms in teaching his followers to do the same. If someone attacked a member of the family, they were instructed to shoot to kill. Fortunately for all involved, Baker, who was 52 by now and saddled with more baggage than he wanted to carry, was more inclined to flee than fight. In March of 1975, only three months after arriving on the island, Baker changed his mind about Hawaii. He bought tickets for himself, Robin, Makushla, two other wives, and two male followers to travel the world in search of a new home. Baker spent about a month traveling first class from India to Egypt, and then on to Greece, Denmark, Germany, England, and Canada. Meanwhile, back in Hawaii, the family languished. Unable to buy food or to get jobs from the unfriendly locals, they were reduced to living off the fruit they managed to gather from the forest. Repo men tracked them down at their property to repossess the family's vans. Rental vehicles, it turned out which Baker had shipped illegally from California. As they watched the vans getting towed away, family members felt impotent and hopeless. Baker had left his followers with instructions on how to solve their financial problems without his help. But whether he realized it or not, Baker had rendered them incapable of doing so. Due to his brainwashing tactics, Baker's followers were able to think of little more than finding a way to reunite with him. Some, including all of Baker's remaining wives, managed to beg or borrow the money they needed to travel to San Francisco to meet Baker when he came back. Others were abandoned in Kauai until the state of Hawaii finally approved their welfare applications to pay for their tickets off the island. In April of 1975, Baker returned from his travels to find his 100 or so remaining followers awaiting him at the San Francisco airport. With the money they had begged for, they had managed to rent four motel rooms in Corte Madera, just five miles south of San Quentin Prison. For the next three weeks, nearly 100 Source family members lived out of these four rooms. Many of them slept sitting up, shoulder to shoulder, with their backs against a wall. This arrangement was hard enough on Baker's followers. For Baker himself, it was intolerable. Not only did he know that living like this was bound to draw attention from the authorities, but as leader of the cult, he felt entitled to luxuries he no longer had access to. Baker became increasingly imperious toward the male members of the cult, browbeating them for their failure to provide an adequate lifestyle. His attempts to shame them spurred his followers to action, but they didn't lead them to success. The men in the family tried and failed to find work. The women applied for welfare in a desperate effort to support their children. This led the family once again to getting unwanted attention from the authorities, as well as some negative press. 
Baker, furious with his followers for complicating this situation, resorted to threats. He declared that if the men couldn't find jobs immediately, they would be forced to leave the family. For Baker's die-hard followers, most of whom had sacrificed literally everything they had to be near him, this was the ultimate threat, and it showed just how close to a breaking point Baker was. His attempts to shake his responsibilities had failed. He either had to find a way to support his followers or give up being a cult leader. But perhaps there was another way out. In June of 1975, Baker returned to Hawaii, this time to the Big Island. His followers once again trailed after as quickly as they could. This time, there were no visions of mangoes and coconuts, only an intensifying need to escape the problems of the present, along with fading hopes for a better future. Former member Laura Guerin says a sort of entropy began to engulf the family during this time. They became weary and listless, According to ISIS, they began to use cocaine and nitrous oxide as a means of forgetting their worldly troubles. Perhaps Baker was losing his grip, or perhaps he was simply coming up with his next great escape. In August of 1975, Baker moved in with a friend of his follower, Mercury, a hang gliding expert who had a glass house on a hilltop in Lanikai, Oahu. From this lofty perch, Baker began spending most of his time staring out at the ocean and talking about how the Source family would survive when he was gone. Although he was only 53 years old, Baker talked about his own death as if it were just around the corner. This may have been partly a power play. Nothing brings a family together like hearing that the patriarch is dying. But it was also evidence of the inner conflict between Baker's guru self and his escapist self. He needed a way to outrun his problems while still maintaining his status as a cult leader. On the morning of August 25th, 1975, Baker's plan came into focus. Having told his followers that he was going ahead of them to make their next home on the Star of Sirius, Baker looked at Mercury during meditation and said, let's go, son. Hours later, the Source family was making their way to a clifftop for Baker's first ever hang gliding attempt. Seasoned hang gliders would consider it reckless to attempt the sport without training. Hang gliders in this part of Hawaii would call it insane. Lani Kai Oahu was famous for its extreme winds, and hang gliding there for the first time was like climbing Mount Everest without a rope. Baker's followers panicked, but Baker waved away their protests assuring them that Jesus was the wind and Jesus would take care of him. Baker ascended to the top of a cliff. Buffeted by extreme winds, Baker climbed into a hang glider for the first time in his life and launched. For one quick moment, he soared. Then the wind stopped. Baker plummeted downward, crash landing in a campground 1,300 feet below. Baker's followers raced back down the cliff in a panic. In the campground, they found their beloved Yehovah still alive, but unable to move. But in a display of what some might call poetic justice, Makushla reminded him that he forbade the use of modern medicine. So instead of taking him to a hospital, Baker's followers carried him back to the commune. By the time they reached it, Baker was in agony. His followers gave him aspirin, champagne, marijuana, cocaine, and nitrous oxide to relieve him. 
After a few hours, he appeared to stabilize, or at least he got high enough not to feel pain anymore. Then, a few hours after that, he died with Makushla lying beside him. Baker's followers were shattered. They mourned Baker's passing for three days before finally allowing authorities to take the body away. Afterwards, no one seemed to know what to do. Some believed Baker had truly passed into a spiritual realm where he was awaiting them. Others felt a deep sense of betrayal. Permeating all their conversations was the question that had haunted Baker himself in the years leading up to his death. How could they keep the family together? Makushla eventually provided an answer, taking over as head of the Source family. For about two years, she and the rest of Baker's wives upheld his legacy by keeping to his spiritual regimen. According to Garen, this included making sure that Kadosh was performed with painstaking regularity. Despite the women's best efforts, however, the cult soon went adrift. And in 1977, less than eight years after it began, the Source family disbanded. Some former members went on to build productive lives, starting businesses based on Baker's teachings. Others turned to alternate cults for answers. Still others remained devoted to Baker and his teachings, determined not to let go. Isis Aquarian is among them. Today, she continues her work as the Source family historian and claims to speak with Baker on a regular basis. Baker tells her they still have more work to do. As far as Isis is concerned, the story of Father Yod and his psychedelic Source family has only just begun. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with another episode. Some of you have asked how you can help the show. If you enjoy Cults, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review, wherever you're listening. You can find Cults and all the ParCast podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or on your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Cults is written by Megan Dane and stars Greg Paulson and Vanessa Richardson.